Welcome back to our latest episode of On the Job with Porak podcast. I'm Brian Marvel, president of Porak. Today we have in Sacramento County District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert, who is currently running for Attorney General. District Attorney Schubert is an internationally recognized law enforcement leader, famous for her successful prosecutions in cases such as the Golden State Killer, the Second Story Rapist, and the California unemployment fraud, which stole billions with a B from hardworking people that actually needed it during the COVID-19 crisis and other well-known criminal cases. Porak is one of many organizations around California that is endorsing Anne-Marie Schubert for Attorney General, and it's a pleasure to have her in our studio today. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Why don't we uh, start a little bit with just your background so people can get to know you a little bit better? Sure. So I, um, I've i been a prosecutor my whole professional career. Uh, I'm now at well over 31 years, which will start to age me a little bit. But, you know, I say this and I mean it. I went to law school really not knowing what I wanted to do. I had no idea. I just thought, oh, this sounds like a good profession. And halfway through school, I interned for this judge in San Francisco named Lucy McCabe. And I got assigned to criminal stuff. I had never had any exposure. And I just fell in love with this public safety concept and advocating for good public policy, you know, accountability, victims' rights. Um, I graduated in 89, passed the bar, and started my career as a prosecutor in 1990 in the Bay Area. And like most most folks that kind of grew up in this industry, you know, you do your typical kind of rotation at misdemeanors and felonies. The, probably 18 to 20 years of my profession before I was elected was doing violent crime. So I did child abuse cases, sexual assault, and then um, homicide for many, many years. And I think many people know that my passion has always been and probably always will be DNA cases. Uh, my first case that I did a DNA case was in the mid-1990s. Um, it was a very serious serial uh, rapist in Solano County, a guy named Scott Wright, who had um, victimized a couple people. But I realized then that it was this incredible tool to find the truth wherever it led us. Um, I, I moved back to Sacramento. So I was a DA in the Bay Area for uh, about I don't know, six or seven years. And I moved back to Sacramento in 1996. I grew up here. Um, and so when I came back, I, you know, did some of the same stuff, child abuse, sexual assault, and homicide. We started the cold case unit in Sacramento in around 2000. I started that. And then in 2014, I ran for district attorney. The, the DA at the time was Jan Scully, very good DA, had been the DA for 20 years. Um, and I was very honored that she urged me to run. And so I ran and uh, was reelected in 2018. And now I'm on this new path of running for attorney general. Well, it's interesting you brought up violent crime. Um, I think most people understand what violent crime is. But uh, when you talk about violent crime and over at the Capitol and, and in the political circles in California, it doesn't mean violent crime outside of California. We'll talk a little bit more about that in some of the cases that you're involved in, but it's just, um, it's interesting to see this path that our California legislators have taken when passing bills where they are trying to minimize the violent crime laws 
on our books. They've constantly, for many years now, taken tools away from both law enforcement and prosecutors. And I, you know, it's almost laughable if it wasn't so kind of pathetic that they turn around and blame the prosecutors if something doesn't happen when we don't have the tools anymore. I mean, it, probably one of the best examples is Prop 47. When Prop 47 was passed, which was you know, this dubbed the Safe Neighborhoods and Schools Act or whatever it was, which decriminalized theft and drugs for the most part. We now have this epidemic of drug addiction and theft. And, you know, then the politicians, and I emphasize politicians, will turn around and say, well, the prosecutors aren't doing enough. And I'm like, but you took the tools away from us. So how how can you turn around and blame us with a straight face? Yeah, it seemed like uh, Prop 47 decimated the drug courts. Decimated drug courts, decimated our tools. I mean, you know, any real prosecutor is going to tell you, listen, we want people to get treatment, okay? Especially if you have a drug problem, because it's not good for the person. It's not good for their family. It's not good for the community. It, you know, it can really destroy the quality of life for so many. But if we don't have the tools to get them into drug treatment, they're not going to go. Yeah. And so now we have this epidemic of what we're seeing under freeways and overpasses and along in neighborhoods now. And it's very visible. It is. And it's really sad, which then brings us to you running for attorney general for the state of California. What uh, what got you to do that? I was encouraged by uh, DAs from around the state. And that was probably about a year and a half ago. Um, you know, I feel very fortunate that I have good relationships with, you know, law enforcement and prosecutors across California. So about a year and a half ago, when it was evident that Becerra was going to get appointed to the Biden administration, several DAs encouraged me to run. DAs that are more conservative DAs, DAs from more liberal counties. And I think I think it's I'd like to believe it's because I've kind of earned this reputation that I'm I'm kind of a warrior for justice and, and good public policy. So when they encouraged me, I thought, well, that's really that's really nice, but I wanted to see who um, would get appointed. And when when Bonta was appointed, um, to me, the lanes are very clear of the difference in ideology and the difference in experience because he doesn't have any experience as a prosecutor. Um, with due respect to him, but if you if you're watching what's going on in San Francisco and Los Angeles counties with those what I call rogue prosecutors, Rob Bonta is the same ideology. He's championed, when we talk about what's happening in our legislature, he's championed many of those bills that have taken the tools from us, reduced accountability, you know, zero bail, those kinds of things that are, you know, now we're in this, as I say, a tsunami of poor public policies and bad elected officials. So for me, I'm running because I one, I know what I'm doing. I don't mean that to be anything. I'm not egotistical. I just, I've been in the business a long time. I believe in public safety. I believe in victims' rights. And I believe in good public policy. And you, amongst many other law enforcement leaders, know that we have watched the demise over the last many years. And we're in a state of chaos. There's no question about it. And whether it's illegal guns, whether it's violent crime, whether it's, you know, this epidemic of homelessness and drug addiction, mental health or theft, we're in a bad state and uh, we need to fix where we are right now. And I'm the person that can do that. Yeah, we definitely are. And it's interesting, too, on the sense that California is sort of this champion of criminal rights instead of protecting victims and, and making sure that victims get all the necessary uh, support resources. It's this drive to continually let criminals out of prison. And People probably don't know this, but since COVID hit in March of 2020, we've released 27,000 inmates from state prison. 
that's just state prison. That doesn't count all the county jails and all those things that go with it. That's an astronomical number. You know, I've always said, listen, you know, you go to prison, we want to make sure you're rehabilitated. We have to invest in that. The question becomes is how well are we doing in that investment? Because as we look now and seeing what's going around around the state and really around this country, the question is, is are we doing a good job? And that really goes into the decriminalization of crime. And, you know, they're pointing to the statistics of arrests are down, prosecutions are down. But it's like when you take away, like you said, the tools of peace officers to be able to arrest somebody or you've taken it from a felony to a misdemeanor, especially the retail theft. Right. I mean, before, if you stole from one store and, and you were arrested and there was a site and then you were arrested again, we could we could then now charge you with a felony. That's all gone. Yeah, that's why we did Assemblymember Cooper and myself and some other DAs and, and obviously Porak and others were involved in this. We, we drafted Prop 20, which was um, designed to deal with what we call the serial theft problem. I mean, what what? Well, that was part of it. The other part was that we call violent crime what they are. So, you know, under California law, there's many laws that most people think are violent that are actually not, such as domestic violence, rape of an unconscious, human trafficking of a child. And why does that matter? Well, because it is violent, but perhaps just as important is the fact that when you call a crime nonviolent, it means they get out of prison early. And when I say early now, our Department of Corrections thinks they should get out after only serving perhaps a third of their sentence. And so there's certain things here that that are really implicating where we're at right now. That's just, it's a fact. And I almost, you know, I kind of almost laugh because the theft component that you're talking about, you know, you can steal 50 times in California now under $950. And some of our elected officials will say, well, what? but but our threshold amount is, is lower than Texas or it's lower than this other state. Yeah, but those states have what we call a serial theft law. So if you actually steal again, there's a higher consequence. We just, we've obliterated that. And the news media never reports that. They're like, oh, you can steal, and I don't know what it is in Texas and I'm making the number up, but you can steal 2,700 bucks and it's, it's a misdemeanor. But like you said, they don't say Texas has a serial theft law, which California doesn't. We're trying to get it back, but there's just no movement at the Capitol to make that happen. And it really brings up an interesting story about the parole board and the makeup of that. I know from personal experiences and having to deal with a officer in San Diego uh, who was executed by a gang member, uh, having to constantly go back to the parole board to fight to make sure that his executor, his killer, stayed in prison. And it seemed like every time we went there, we talked, the parole board let him go. Uh, and then ultimately the governor made the right choice at the time and consistently has a couple governors. Uh, they keep him in prison where he needs to stay for the rest of his life. You shouldn't be able to execute people and, and get out. I just, I, I'm a firm believer, uh, you know, life without the probability of parole is, is a, it, it doesn't exist in California. There's always a chance that somebody in our state is going to let somebody out, no matter how heinous the crime. And that's the reality that we live in. But we recently had an incident here in Sacramento where we just found out uh, a guy was sentenced to 10 years. Uh, he's out in less than four. And now we have... Six people dead in the city of Sacramento, and there's probably going to be more info coming out. But, you know, this whole early release. Yeah, I think it's really important. And, and obviously, because that case is under investigation, I can't really talk about it. I mean, the fact is he was sentenced to 10 years. He got out in less than five. But from a broader perspective, it's 
I think folks need to understand that my office, DAs across California have been fighting this early release policies of the Department of Corrections. I know in my office since 2015, I mean, we're upwards of seven years now that we've been trying to tell everybody, listen, these people are dangerous. And that's in part because these crimes are defined as nonviolent. So what to me is such a hypocrisy or, you know, deceitful thing is to tell the public we're only going to let nonviolent people out. Well, what they're not telling the people is those people perhaps have a history of violence. It could be murder. It could be rape. It could be robberies and carjackings. And then they go to prison for, say, being a felon in possession of a firearm or felony domestic violence. So let's take let's take an example. Guy goes to prison for robbery, gets sentenced to five years. That's what we call a violent crime. Robbery is a violent crime. He gets out, he reoffends, and he beats the living daylights out of his girlfriend. He gets convicted of a felony domestic violence. Under the rules we have now, they don't even care about the violence in his background. And they don't call that violent crime, the domestic violence, they don't call it violent. So that means now under these rules, you can get out now. What they want is potentially after a third. So for us in Sacramento and across California, San Diego, all over, we've been fighting this stuff for years. We've been trying to tell the public, it's coming. It's like Prop 47. It's coming. So now, as we sit here, we, we have done so much. We started writing letters in 2015 telling, when we say parole board, it's really not a parole board. It's like with people like your officer that was killed, they do go in front of their parole board. They have to to, to be heard by commissioners. The early releases, there's no parole board. It's an administrative review. It's a paper review. So I don't get to go down to, you know, headquarters or whatever and say, no, 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 don't let him out. He's too dangerous. We get to write a letter. So that's why we've written hundreds and hundreds of letters saying, this guy's too dangerous. So we've done that. Then you, you're very familiar with Prop 20. Assemblymember Cooper, my office and others wrote this because we wanted to change the definition of what's violent. I mean, that got rejected. Constantly in our legislature, we try to have bills to redefine it. And last week, there was a bill to call human trafficking a violent crime. Three legislators, three people are deciding the fate of those bills. They rejected it again. Now we're suing to the Department of Corrections because guess what? They want to increase the credits even more. So when they try to spin it and try to say, well, you know, the prosecutors did this or law enforcement didn't do their jobs, then you need to look back in history and ask what really have they done? I think that goes well with the uh, like the DNA. I know the uh, the Golden State Killer that you ultimately were able to to locate and capture and, and bring them to justice uh, was really based off of a DNA. How do you see that playing out in the future of of cases? I mean, I know there's a big push, especially on the death penalty cases, to reexamine those, which I'm good with. Sure. Uh, especially, you know, with the technology that we have with DNA. Um, how did that play out? I mean, was it I know you've done uh, stories and articles on it, but just for our listeners, um, you know, how important was it to get that sample to to really make this case? Well, the idea of using this kind of novel thing called genetic genealogy, which is essentially, you know, they had they had the Golden State Killer's DNA that he had left it at crime scenes. And then they'd exhausted pretty much what they could do with the DNA through like our DNA index system, our CODIS system, or, you know, looking for suspects and all that. So this idea was was created. It really, Paul Holes gets a lot of the credit. He was from Contra Costa County of let's try to use a, a genealogy site to see if we can identify his relatives. And he came and met with me in November of 2017. And I'm like, 
that's a pretty good idea. You know, it's legal. Let's do it. Um, had a core group of folks that worked on it. You know, I remember one day walking into one of the folks in my office working on it and I'm like, is this going to work? And she looked at me and she said, it's the greatest hope we have. And it was, and ultimately it worked. And what, what I think is, first of all, a lot of people thought the guy would never get caught. A lot of people thought he was dead. Um, you know, I'd been involved in the case for probably 20 years. And, and my view was whether he's alive or dead, we need to figure out who it is. He destroyed people's lives. So I just give so much credit to law enforcement. I mean, this was a huge investigation by so many police agencies. People, you know, they dedicated their careers to this case. So huge shout out to law enforcement on this. Um, but I think even since then, since that arrest and that conviction, what has been done across this country with that tool now is unbelievable. I mean, cases, first of all, it would never have been solved ever if this tool had not been used. I mean, this guy, you know, D'Angelo, sadly, was a former cop. He'd been fired, uh, rightfully so. But since that time, we've used it to solve a bunch of cases in, in Sacramento. San Diego's used a ton of them. I mean, some pretty high profile cases. I just did a podcast with San Diego DA Summer Stefan on a couple cases that they were able to solve. And it's just, to me, it's like to bring these families that have waited so long and answer, even if, the, even if the bad guy was dead when they finally figured it out, at least they know, right? Probably one of the proudest cases that we've had in Sacramento was a case that we actually helped do an exoneration of. It was a, actually a guy convicted out of El Dorado County for a murder who it back in, I think the murder was in the eighties and he'd professed his innocence for years. And then the innocence project came to our office and said, Hey, will you help us do some, like you say, post-conviction stuff? And we're like, yeah, sure. And the DA Vern Pearson from El Dorado said, yeah, we support this. And ultimately not only figured out that it was not his DNA that was left on this woman's body, but was able to figure out who it belonged to through genealogy. And now somebody else is charged. And that guy, his name is Ricky Davis. Ricky Davis was the guy that was exonerated in he was factually innocent. So it's an amazing tool that just has revolutionized crime fighting yeah. across California, really across the country. I know. And it's, it's interesting because you think, you know, the other side of the spectrum, you know, they believe, you know, once we've arrested somebody and, and they've gone through the court system and, and they've been found guilty and, and uh, you know, they're serving their time in, in prison that uh, we're not continually looking out to, to seek justice and, uh, you know, make sure that people that are may not be in prison uh, shouldn't be there if they didn't commit the crime. And I think this is a perfect example. And I know, uh, I know our organization is not opposed to, to using DNA to exonerate people. And I think we should be doing more of it, uh, to provide, uh, you know, people the opportunity to, if they're not there, uh, because they didn't commit the crime, then they shouldn't be there. So now let's move on to like, what I really think is, is, a, is a huge, case in a sense of the uh, EDD, uh, the fraud. Right. I mean, I just watched a, a series up here. I think uh, KCRA News did an investigative report on it. I mean, this is billions, yeah, billions <laughs> with a B, uh, uh, the amount of money that was stolen that, that could have been supporting uh, all of these people in need during COVID-19. And your office found it. Well, credit goes to initially it came out of uh, the DA of Lassen. Um, her name's Melissa Rios, who started kind of an email chain of amongst the DA saying, hey, anybody seen this, this EDD fraud in the prisons? Because she has two prisons in, in, up in Susanville. And 
when she sent that email, I thought, well, we should check because we have two prisons in Sacramento. And then it just exploded when we started realizing. And then we asked our sheriff's office, like with the jail, then we realized like 600 inmates had claims in their names. And so within about a month or two, we realized the magnitude. And, and it's hard. And the thing that that was so shocking to me was not just the amount of money, but this was handed out to criminals that some of which were in prison or in, you know, some of the claims were made by people on death row. Doesn't mean that the, those were the actual person that filed the claim, but at least it made in their name. And then the other comp thing that has been very concerning is everybody, you know, for the last year and a half is in law enforcement in particular talking about how many illegal guns are on our streets, right? That's, it's like an everyday conversation. How many guns, how many guns are pulling off the streets? How many gun arrests happened this weekend? It's a bad combination of EDD fraud and guns because there's no good deed by giving out that amount of money to a bunch of people that are either gang members or felons. You know, they're either Many of them were buying Maseratis or getting Botox, but I'm quite confident many were buying illegal weapons. It's interesting that if this type of fraud dealt with guns, Sacramento, the capital, they'd be working 24-7, wanting to know what happened, why it happened. There would be special commissions. There would be blue ribbon committees. But because it's dollars and it's billions of dollars, I, there's been nothing really out of the capital to actually take a deep dive in this. And, and there's no special committees. There's no blue ribbon commissions. There's no, the attorney general's office hasn't set up a special task force. I know the, at the federal level, the federal government has sent, set up a special task force that's, that's going to work through this, but th that's going to take years for that to work its way through. And it just, uh, it's just unfathomable that, uh, you know, the number I heard was like $32 billion. It's probably quite that. I went, I mean, I went to a, I was asked to be on a national panel. It was for, it might have been International Association or Major Chiefs Association in Vegas, I don't know, maybe six months ago. And I was invited because, sadly, California is kind of the epicenter of where this is happening. And it became off. So there was a bunch, there was a couple cops on there from New York. And it became apparent that California was almost the laughing stock because, because it was so easy to do. And there was so little, there was no um, safety measures in place with EDD to prevent this. There was no what we call cross-matching. So if somebody goes to prison, one would think you check the systems to make sure they're not getting money. And that was not put into place. And, and although 35 other states did have it. So I think what's really unfortunate is that Everybody is rightfully concerned about the number of illegal guns on our streets. And I tell this a lot lately. It's like, I don't think there's, other than the criminals, I don't think anybody disagrees that we don't want felons to have guns. But we also handed out billions of dollars that allowed them to go buy those guns. There's no doubt in my mind. And, you know, the car stops by the cops with the guns, the drugs, and the EDD cards. It's not a coincidence. And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing a rise in violent crime because we've, essentially, you know, given a lot of money out and billions of dollars is more than budgets of other countries. Yeah. That's what people can't even, if you were to put it all in perspective, it's twice the budget of, I think, if my memory is right, twice the budget of the Department of Corrections. I mean, that's a huge number. I think I, I saw a tweet by the, uh, the United Nations. Uh, I don't know if he was the director, or the chief officer of the United Nations, but he said to solve world hunger, 
would cost the world $10.6 billion. But yet California just gave away three times that amount to criminals. Who knows what they're doing with that money? And it's just unfortunate that there's not more emphasis or desire to get to the bottom of this at a faster pace because the, like you said, these are the people we don't want to have this kind of money to buy the weapons the, that were, will ultimately trickle down to the streets right. and uh, we'll start seeing more violent crime, which is very unfortunate. One of the things that we realize fairly quickly, and your law enforcement listeners will understand this, is that we have these laws called asset forfeiture that apply most primarily to drugs. So if you're seizing illegal drugs, you can take, you know, whatever their cars and their Maseratis, everything that's related to what they purchased with the drug money. One would think you could do that when you, you were able to identify they've committed EDD fraud and they have a Maserati that they used, that they bought with it, but... Our laws don't allow that, and we actually have tried to run legislation to kind of fix that. I'm not even sure where it is right now, but um, it's a lot of screaming at the beginning and not necessarily a lot of action at the end. (laughs) Definitely not, unfortunately. So, uh, obviously, with you running for attorney general, you need a lot of support. PORAC has endorsed uh, your campaign. Uh, we look forward to uh, to your victory and Me working too. with you uh, over at the uh, Department of Justice. Um, if people wanted to uh, contribute to your campaign or be active, uh, what's your website? Website is www.annemarie for AG, so A-N-N-E-M-A-R-I-E-F-O-R-A-G.com. And I will just say this, listen, I, I cannot underestimate how grateful I am for the support of PORAC. And you know, I feel like I've had a longstanding relationship with your association, done a lot of projects together, but um, I'm very proud to be supported by the men and women of California's law enforcement. Well, we're happy to, uh, to be on board with you and we wish you all of the success. I recommend that you go to her website, go to all of her social media platforms. We really need to turn the tide in California and start protecting uh, communities, uh, especially communities in need. Uh, They definitely need all the support that they can get. And we need to make sure that uh, they're provided the resources and the law enforcement they deserve and need to keep their communities safe. So uh, please go visit our website, social media. Thank you uh, so much for coming in and having a conversation with us today, Anne-Marie. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. Thank you all for joining us on this latest episode of On the Job with Porak with Sacramento County District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert, currently running for Attorney General. If you haven't already, like and subscribe to this podcast and share us on social media. As always, we'd like to close this podcast by thanking all our Porak members and our nation's law enforcement. We hope you stay safe and have a great day. PORAC is California's largest law enforcement organization and the largest statewide association in the nation, representing over 77,000 public safety members since 1953. Our monthly podcasts, as well as past episodes, are available on PORAC.org, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, PORAC's YouTube channel, or where popular podcasts are downloaded. Be sure to follow us on all our social media platforms and tag us with your suggestions for future show topics. To learn more about our organization, visit us at PORAC. Porak.org. We are Porak.